Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today I'm speaking with Malina Gak-Levin, an educator and parent who lives in Brooklyn with her two bilingual daughters and husband. She is the founder of Pueblo, which supports multicultural families through parenting classes and consultations. She's also the co-founder of Nido Forest, New York City's first forest school in Espanol. Melina has a dual master's from Bank Street College of Education in infant, toddler, and family development and early childhood general and special education. She is a former preschool teacher and currently teaches graduate students at Bank Street College of Education. In this conversation, we discuss Melina's experiences growing up with multiple languages and how they shaped her identity. We also discuss her journey to becoming a teacher and what led her to found Pueblo and Nido Forest. Melina shares her experiences raising two bilingual daughters and offers advice for parents raising bilingual or multilingual children. I hope you enjoy this episode with Melina. Hi, Melina. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you today. Uh, So to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself and your family. Tell us where you live and what you do. Thank you. My name is Melina, and I am a mother to two bilingual daughters. Um, One is five, and the younger one is two, or five and a half. She'd never forgive me if I didn't (laughs) add that. So she's five and a half and two. (laughs) And I live in Brooklyn with my daughters and my husband, Michael. I am the founder of Pueblo, through which I support multicultural families um, like my own in figuring out how to parent in a way that takes account of both the evidence and the research and the theory, but also our own cultures and our own values and how to bridge all of that together. Um, I'm also the co-founder of Nido Forest, which is New York City's first forest school in Espanol, which is a class that I founded for my older daughter when she was two. And we can chat about that a little bit more later. Yeah. Um, And my husband, Michael's an artist. And so that's a big part of our home as well. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited to talk about forest schools and all of that. Um, Before we get there, tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about your language experiences growing up and what role did language and multilingualism play in your life as a child? Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. You know, I was, I was thinking about um, where to start with this, <laughs> with this question, because language has been such a big part of my life um, in lots of different ways. And I've actually spoken and forgotten languages along the way. Um, So my mother is Puerto Rican and my father's Chilean and I was born in Colombia. So Spanish was the first language that I was really exposed to. It was the language of our home. Um, My parents had a theater group, so I was actually born on tour. Um, And most of the the members of their theater group also spoke Spanish, but some were European. So there were a couple of other languages kind of sprinkled in there. Um, But Spanish was really my first language. And then 
eventually my parents, we had been on tour in Latin America for the first sort of few years of my life and eventually went back to Europe um, and lived in Holland and a little bit in France, but also kind of on tour. Um, so my second language was really Dutch. And wow. my third language was French because that was what my parents spoke with each other because they met, they actually met in Paris. Oh, wow. So they spoke French at home with each other when they didn't want me to understand. And that was how I picked that up. <laughs> um, so there was all these sort of different languages around me kind of all the time. Um, eventually, when I was about seven, we moved to Georgia, the state, not the country. And I picked up English and without... The, without really having a reason to practice Dutch, that's a language that I no longer really understand um, or use. Um, but but I do speak, I mean, obviously I speak English and I speak Spanish at home with my daughters. And um, as, as far as that, as the, the role that language played in my life, I think a big part of it was through relationships. So Dutch, became a language that I spoke in part because that was what was spoken at my preschool and by my neighbors. And so wanting to communicate naturally, that was a language that really, um, that I picked up pretty quickly once once I was kind of out of, out of the home and making relationships outside of the home. Um, and, and Spanish is a language that's sort of always been um, kind of home base for me because it's the language that I speak with my parents. and the language that I've chosen to really speak with my daughters. Um, but as an adolescent, it was kind of a challenge for me because we eventually moved to New Jersey. So it's a, it's a very sort of long story <laughs> with lots of moving, moving places. But eventually my parents and, and my brother and I, I have a younger brother, moved to New Jersey. And we were the only really, the only Spanish speaking family in my school that I knew of. Um, so even though I spoke Spanish at home, my brother and I really mostly spoke English with each other and um, and I spoke English outside of the home, obviously. And so I had a little bit more of a fraught relationship because it felt very, um, um, I was the only one really who was speaking it, um, it was among my peer group. Um, and so even though other students were taking Spanish in school and I was taking French in school at that point, and so I knew there was some value placed on other languages. It still felt a little bit othering to be the one who people came to to, you know, for help with their homework, <laughs> um, as opposed to sort of having a community of Spanish speakers around me. Mm, yeah. And so um, what was your relationship with Spanish like as you got older? Do you feel like you always, other than feeling like you were the only Spanish-speaking family in school, did you feel like you always had a positive relationship with the language or did it kind of ebb and flow? You know, I always had a positive relationship with it in that it's sort of, it feels like like a heart language to me, right? Like it's the language of, of home. So there's this real sort of love for it. And I never really lost that. Um, I think where it became a little bit more fraught to me was where it was wrapped up with my identity. Um, and that was something that I also kind of navigated somewhat in college. So I went to college um, here in New York and I immediately gravitated towards trying to find other people with Puerto Rican backgrounds or Chilean backgrounds or just um, 
people who who I sort of wanted to to relate to because I didn't have that as a as a teenager or a preteen. And so um, I found my way towards those groups. And then at the same time, I realized I had such a different lived experience. And my accent in Spanish is neither Chilean nor Puerto Rican. And so there was this sort of, well, I don't really fit in here either sense. And it wasn't really until I started reading about third culture kids and sort of lots of other ways that um, culture and language can, can come into your life that I started feeling like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, um, for anyone who doesn't know, can you define what third culture kids is? Ooh, um, I'd like to, but I feel like I'm going to mess it up a little bit. Um, so a, th a third culture child is really, the way that I think of it is that it's it's a child with a culture that's a mix both of um, their parents' culture, but also the cultures in which they were raised, which are different from their parents' culture. So for me, my own culture is a blend of my dad's Chilean background and my mom's Puerto Rican background, and then also the, the, the cultures in which I grew up. So I spent time in Europe, I spent time in the US, and so it's all kind of in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and oh, I also wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with French like these days? Do you still speak or understand French? I can read it. I can read it and I can speak it a little bit, but not very well. You know, it's funny. I think everyone's always told me, oh, as soon as you go back to France, it'll just come back to you. And my husband and I went to Paris um, as part of our honeymoon. And I remember going to the first restaurant and feeling like as soon as they speak <laughs> to me, I'll know what to say. And that did not happen. <laughs> and so it was a little bit surprising. Um, but I, it's one of those languages that I think with time spent with it, it, it does come back. Um, and it's, it's funny, my mom now speaks some French with my own daughters. And as soon as I hear them kind of speaking, I'm like, oh, right, right. Yes, I remember this. Yeah. Um, so actually, some of the lullabies that I sing them are in French. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk a little bit about teaching. So tell me about your journey to becoming a teacher and what made you decide to get into teaching and what were some of your early teaching experiences like? Sure. Um, I've always really, really loved kids. Um, and I always really have gravitated towards the younger ages, towards like preschoolers and toddlers and babies. Um, and so my entry into teaching was actually through movement. Um, I have a movement background in dance and yoga. And um, at some point after college, once I realized I didn't really want to be in an office job, um, I trained to teach uh, children yoga. And so my entry into teaching was actually um, as sort of a drop-in yoga teacher. So I was teaching at lots of different schools. Actually, sometimes in Spanish, um, I taught yoga at La Escuelita on the Upper West Side and oh, cool. several other um, schools in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. Um, and what was really nice about it was that I got to see lots of different school settings and to sort of be a fly on the wall in different um, environments. And the more that I saw, the more that I realized well, this is really calling to me. Um, and 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 seeing sort of the differences in approaches and the differences in in um, 
styles of teaching and style, ways that classrooms could be set up. And so I, the more that, that I saw, the more that I wanted to know. And that was, that was where I started um, to really take an interest in going and getting trained. Awesome. And so then, um, then is that when you went for your master's degree? I did. Yeah. So after a few years of teaching um, as a, as a yoga teacher and a movement teacher, um, I, one of the names that kept coming up at the schools that I was really interested in, in the schools and teachers that I really admired kept mentioning Bank Street. And I hadn't really heard of Bank Street before, um, but the name kept coming up. And so I, I sort of looked into them and I knew that I really wanted to focus on young children. I really wanted to focus on toddlers and babies. And Bank Street has a program, um, a track that is specific to that age group and doesn't just sort of lump them in as part of early childhood mm. because those first three years, zero to three is so specific and different from five and six and seven. Um, and so they have a master's degree that's specific um, to infant and toddler development. And the Bank Street approach really resonated for me because of its focus on relationships and on learning as being continuous. So both the educator and the adults in the room and the children are all learning from each other and together. And a lot, there's a lot also about learning through active engagement with materials and with ideas and with people. And all of that really felt um, like it spoke to me. So that was when I decided to, to apply um, and to start my journey with Bank Street, which has been really lovely. Awesome. So what, you, uh, was it a dual master's degree? And what was the, what was the title of it? So I completed the dual master's program that has the longest title. Bank Street is known for having very, very long <laughs> titles for their degrees, but I'll, I have the longest name of degree, which is um, Infant and Family Development and Early Intervention and early childhood general and special education. <laughs> so it covers the, the sort of specific zero to three, um, what's happening at, at those ages. And then additionally, um, the early childhood um, up to age seven. Awesome. And, then, and then there's the focus both on um, the typical development and then um, early uh, special education and children with disabilities. Did you talk at all about um, like speech development and as it relates to bilingualism and multilingualism in young children? Yeah, we actually had a couple of classes on um, language and language acquisition. And I actually remember specifically um, one, one of the classes on language acquisition in which they my teacher um, shared what um, one of the things we were reading about was was really about how children who encounter another language a little bit later, what that experience is like, what it be becoming bilingual or multilingual can be like at later ages. Um, and one of the readings that we did was about this silent period and how many children will have that that period of time for months sometimes where they won't speak. Um, as they're sort of taking in and processing and learning another language. And that was an experience that I had when we moved to the US and I was six or seven. And I remember being in second grade and not saying anything for months. I think I, I, the first time I spoke was on Valentine's Day um, as a gift to one of my teachers. And, but I remember 
feeling that as, as a fault of mine, right? Like that it had been something that was problematic. Um, and I had no idea until I was in graduate school that this is so typical. And, and you know, all the things happened to me that we read about that um, can happen when schools don't really understand bilingualism, right? So I was put in speech classes and they were trying to get me to speak that way. And there was a lot of, and so I really felt like this is something that's wrong with me. Um, and that just reading about that and being exposed to how that is actually a typical experience was so eye-opening that I actually, I remember weeping with the teacher afterwards and being like, I didn't know, I had no idea. And it was so validating um, to know that that I wasn't alone. Yeah, absolutely. Something that comes up a lot in my work is, um, you know, parents who are concerned that their child has, um, you know, a speech delay or Mm -hmm. they say, or they're even told by educators or professionals that they shouldn't teach their child another language or that they Mm -hmm. should speak the school language at home because their child's not speaking at school. And, um, you know, of course, you know this, but speech, (laughs) you know, issues can occur concurrently with bilingualism and multilingualism, but they definitely do not correlate. And so that (laughs) is really interesting. And, you know, the silent period is a real thing that Mm -hmm. not a lot of people know about. And um, so it's very interesting and, and so powerful that you had experienced that and felt it so deeply but didn't know it until graduate school yeah which was you know 20 years later yeah 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 um did they talk any about uh, at all about Montessori philosophy or pedagogy in the master's program I do remember reading about Maria Montessori as part of a class on the history and sort of theories of education And I remember being really quite taken by her story. It's super fascinating, um, especially for a woman during her time. Um, But we didn't really go into the specifics of Montessori education, um, like the specific materials or really what it looks like today. Um, At the time though, before I had kids, I had a lot of time um, and I really loved visiting schools. So I would always make it a point during during breaks to go um, visit different schools. And so I made it a point to visit several Montessori schools just to get a sense of what that pedagogy looks like in action. Mm. Um, And I also had a few students in class with Montessori backgrounds who had been trained, but were now getting another master's. because Bank Street really encourages that we learn from each other, I was I learned a lot from from hearing their perspective, um, especially in terms of of preparing environments and thinking about about um, materials and environments, mm. and the role yeah. of the teacher too. I think. Well, what you were saying before about Bank Street's approach um, to early childhood and the zero to three age reminded me a lot about the Montessori approach, um, mm-hmm. and I think that it has influenced a lot of more mainstream or what we see as more mainstream um, approaches to early childhood, but that might not necessarily be like the materials or the exact approach, but Mm -hmm. those philosophies of like seeing children as people and Mm -hmm. seeing them as, as people that we can learn from as well, not just people that we are teaching. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. And, and that idea of, um, that relationship that the teacher has with the children, I think is so different than 
than um, traditions where a teacher sort of is there to just impart knowledge um, as opposed to really a participant in this community and a guide in a different way, in a, in a much more subtle way. So then after the master's program, where did that lead you next? <laughs> so after I finished my master's, um, I had been doing student teaching at Brooklyn Friends School. Um, and so I continued working there and then um, with the twos within the family center. So they have they had a, a program that was specific for just two-year-olds. Um, and I taught there and I also then left for a year to go work at Brooklyn Schoolhouse, which is a Reggio inspired school. Um, and I learned a lot from that approach as well. Um, back to Brooklyn Friends School to the twos again for a couple of years. Um, and then I had my first daughter who is now five. And after, you know, really through that transition of becoming a parent, um, I'd started to really um, become more, more interested in supporting parents. Um, and I was finding that as a teacher, a lot of my work was supporting parents. Um, and that was really speaking to me beyond, you know, parent-teacher conferences. When you're working with the really young ages, you're talking to parents about sleep and about transitions into big siblinghood and you, learning to use the toilet and all these sort of moments um, and conversations that I found so um just wonderful to get to be a part of that. Um, and so after the birth of my daughter, I left teaching to focus on doing parent support. And I started teaching workshops, mostly in person, because this was pre-pandemic, <laughs> and, um, and doing consultations um, also over the phone or in person, um, and just supporting parents with these kinds of transitions. I think my first workshop was about um, separation leading up to the school year. Mm. Yeah. What are some of your biggest tips? Because actually, many children are probably starting school in the next yeah. month or two. Yeah. What are some of your biggest tips for separation? Yeah. So one of my biggest tips is that in order for children to really comfortably separate from their caregivers, they need to be able to transfer that attachment temporarily to another caregiver. So the most important thing is really to to focus on building that relationship with their teacher, whoever, you know, whether it's one teacher in the classroom or it's an assistant, whoever it is that they're connecting with, really um, establishing that relationship. I think even to, you know, some schools, when I was teaching, I would always send the kids a postcard over the summer so that they could have a picture of me and my face and they could start to get to know me. And I would say something, you know, it was always something like, oh, we're setting the classroom up. I can't wait to meet you. Um, and, you know, not every school is going to do that, but if you have access to a photo of the teacher, there's something really powerful about being able to hold that face. Yeah. And I've seen kids come into school with this sort of tattered photograph and kind of look at it and look at me and, and just try to kind of put it together. Okay. This is the person. Yeah. <laughs> this is who's going to take care of me. That's such a good idea. Yeah. It really makes it concrete and it's something mm -hmm. that they can tangibly hold and attach that identity to exactly exactly that's great advice I had um, kids who slept with their photos it was really sweet oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I love that I actually yeah. now that I'm you're reminding me that I 
babysat a little boy years and years ago and he had um, his teacher's picture up on the fridge and mm-hmm. he would always every time I saw him he would take me to the fridge this is my teacher this are their mm-hmm. names and you know he really loved <laughs> yeah. having them in his home yeah yeah but, and it makes that sort of home and school connection that you can establish it really early yeah yeah um, another school that I worked at made a placemat of everyone in the class so everyone in the class mm-hmm. would send in a family photo and there would also be the teacher's photos on the placemat. And I just heard so often from parents that the children would just sit and name everyone on the, on the yeah. placemat over and over <laughs> and over. That's so sweet. That's such a great idea. Yeah, they really- And it really it. just speaks to that power of relationships. Yeah. Right, like it's really, it's about the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing that, um, speaking of building those relationships, another thing I remember when I was in the classroom is that um, it was so important for the parent to also have uh, a good relationship with the teacher or, or to speak positively about mm-hmm. the teacher and act like they were confident in yes. the child's experience at school. That always, I noticed that making a big difference if the parent was a little nervous, then the child would also probably be nervous. Yes. So that's maybe a fake it till you make it kind of thing mm-hmm. if, if a parent is feeling anxious, but yeah. for the parent to try to build that relationship too. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, kids are always looking to us to know how to feel about new situations. So they're looking to us to know, am I safe here? do you trust this person? Should I trust this person? Um, so I think you're right. That's sort of in the beginning, it's hard because you don't know the teacher either. And now having been, you know, on the, having been on the other side as a parent, I also definitely was not fully ready to trust <laughs> on the first day, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> I had questions, even though by the end of the year, I completely, i happily dropped my daughter off with her teacher. Um, but the first day you don't know. Um, so being able to sort of just act as if you do makes a big difference. (laughs) Definitely. So that leads me into our next topic, um, talking about your family. So you mentioned that you're raising two bilingual daughters. So Mm -hmm. what does bilingualism or multilingualism look like in your family? And uh, what have your children's language experiences been so far? Yeah, multilingualism has, bilingualism has looked lots of different ways in our family um, in the last five years. (laughs) Um, You know, when my daughter, when my first daughter was born, um, my husband and I always spoke to each other in English, even though he actually also, he learned Spanish as an adult. but we mostly spoke to each other in English. So it didn't feel easy or seamless to speak to her in Spanish because it wasn't the language of our, of our home. Um, but we both knew that we wanted her to speak Spanish. And so little by little, we started focusing on only speaking Spanish with her. Um, and for me, it was interesting because I grew up speaking Spanish with my parents, but not really socially and not with children. So all of a sudden I had to kind of figure out how I was going to speak Spanish um, to my own daughter in a way that reflected the way that I spoke 
to children in English, right? Because my, my language for children had really evolved um, through education and through being in the classroom. I felt like I spoke to children differently than maybe my parents spoke to me. Um, so learning how to be a parent in Spanish was, was tricky at first and sort of figuring out how do I validate emotions in this language <laughs> instead of just telling her to be okay? <laughs> um, what resources did you tap into for that support? Yeah, so the first thing I did was that I bought that book, um, How to Speak So Kids Will Listen and How to Listen So Kids Will Speak in Spanish. Oh, okay. so I thought, you know, at least this is a start. <laughs> um, and honestly, the other really great resource was that we had a babysitter. We hired a babysitter um, when my daughter was almost, she was about 10 months, I think, 10 or 11 months. And our babysitter, um, who's an incredible educator and is Mexican and spoke Spanish in our home, I learned a lot from listening to her and sort of how she would phrase things. But some of it for me was also um, after the fact, sort of after I would say something to, to my daughter sitting and thinking, okay, well, is there another way to say that? Or how would I say this and, and practicing and really practicing? Um, I realized that, um, you know, in Spanish, it was very, the, the adjective that, that I feel like I relied on a lot um, because it was used a lot in my own childhood and with my, and my parents still use it with, with my two daughters, a lot is, um, very sort of appearance based <laughs> uh, adjectives. So a lot of like, it is muy bonita. You're very pretty. And so sort of trying to get away from them being like, no, this is, there's other ways to talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, took practice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So then how did that experience differ with your second child when you're already kind of in the groove of speaking Spanish it's been so much easier because we've already developed those like the phrases that we go to and even just the way of thinking in that language um the way of thinking in Spanish has has my way of thinking has developed and I feel much more fluid um and comfortable with the language that I use with her um and my husband and I have now also started speaking more Spanish with each other and that's been a really actually really lovely Part of this is that it felt like I didn't realize that there was a part of myself I wasn't really sharing or bringing to our home. Um, but now that it's there and it's sort of being expressed, it's really lovely to be myself and to use whatever language comes out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and so have you, I, so now your children are would you say they're bilingual or do you, would you say they're Spanish dominant and have they been, have they spoken English a lot outside of the home? Mm -hmm. My, I would say my older daughter is bilingual and fully bilingual. And my, my younger daughter is Spanish dominant, but it's rapidly changing. <laughs> um, and and that was a really conscious effort on our part, um, especially with my older daughter. I knew from my own experiences and from my education, I wasn't worried at all about her picking up English. I knew she would pick it up. We live in Brooklyn. She's surrounded by it. It's, it was going to happen. Um, I was more worried about her holding on to Spanish. And so pretty quickly, we focused only on speaking Spanish with her. Our babysitters spoke Spanish. We're very lucky that my parents also live nearby. So she spends a lot of time with them. 
Um, and you know, any, any book I read to her, I translated into Spanish. Our bookshelves are full of books in Spanish, all our music or our music classes, everything. We really, we really focused on that early um, with the goal of, of establishing that language pretty strongly um, before she was heading out into the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but she was still hearing a lot of English input anyway, right from the playground. And my, we're fortunate that my husband's parents lived nearby too, and they spoke to her in, in English. Um, and by the time, so she started school, she was in school briefly before the pandemic, but only for two weeks. And then she really started school this year. <laughs> um, and I would say within two months, English was really dominant for her. Um, but she doesn't go to a bilingual school. She goes to an English, English speaking school. So, um, and that was both surprising and painful, just how quickly it happened, even though I knew it would. It was still really, you know, she responds to me mostly in English now. Um, and that was really hard for me. Um, but now that it's summer, <laughs> we're really focusing on that Spanish input again. And um, and I've my husband and I are being really intentional about, about maintaining it, especially through relationships and making sure that we're having play dates with kids who speak Spanish and that she's seeing, you know, our family and our friends who speak Spanish and finding people in our community um, who also speak Spanish so that there's that sense of, of um, a reason for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that was going to be my next question. How are you supporting that um, maintaining Spanish? But that's, that's great. Really tapping into the community and finding other relationships, I think is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And it's, and it's honestly, it's part of what led me to start Nido, the forest school. Yeah. Um, because as my older daughter turned closer to two, I was noticing her start to make friends at the playground and really encountering English and working to make herself understood. Mm -hmm. um, and I noticed how in most of the interactions outside of our home, at least in our situation, English was really centered and the expectation was that she would adapt to that consciously or not, um, as opposed to there being sort of this mutual, like the other child is also learning her language. Mm. Um, and so I started to look for other um, social situations in which Spanish could be centered. And there wasn't a lot. Um, you know, we took a Spanish music class that's amazing and wonderful. If you are in Brooklyn, the Cante Baila class at Hootenanny is great. Um, and that was wonderful. And I wanted something else. And I already knew about forest schools and I had wanted to participate um, in, in one, but there wasn't any in Spanish. And I thought, well, I could make this happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I read a book. You've probably read the book. Um, There's no such thing as bad weather. Mm -hmm. um, and after yeah. I read that, I, I had heard about forest schools and I knew a little bit about them, but after I read that book, I was like, I want to move to the country and start a forest school, <laughs> but you can yeah. do it in Brooklyn too. So tell me, tell me yeah. more about the school and, um, and what a typical day looks like. Yeah. So our, our program is actually, it's more of a class than a school. 
So it's about, um, it's an hour long class for children with a caregiver. So oftentimes children will come with a parent or if we've had kids come with grandparents or babysitters um, and the class is about an hour long and it's got a really sweet rhythm to it. So we try to keep it very predictable. The kids are all really young. It's, they start at around 15 months that goes up to about three. Um, although this fall, we're bringing back our Exploradores class, which is for the older age, it's like three to six, um, in part because I want my daughter to do it again um, and she misses it. So, um, but, but generally because they're so young and they really thrive on that routine, um, we keep it really simple. So they, they arrive, there's a sort of greeting circle where we um, notice who's here and greet each other and thank the forest for welcoming us. And we maybe sing a couple of songs. Um, and then there's a lot of space for open exploration. And um, teachers will have set up a sort of play area based on their observations of what the children are interested in and what they're exploring. Um, and also based a little bit around what they're noticing about, about the environment and the changing seasons and things like that. So now that it's summer, there's a lot of water play. <laughs> there's a lot of play with water and with, uh, with wind, with air. Um, and based on the group, they'll adapt the materials. So we often, um, each child gets a little explorer's kit that has a, um, a bowl or a, or a bucket and a shovel and some musical instruments. Um, and then the teachers will add in a few things. So sometimes it's, um, it's, you know, materials to dig with, or sometimes it might be, um, you know, right now I know they're using um, a lot of um, droppers and turkey basters and things that can squirt water and use bees for transferring. And we tend to use a lot of sort of kitchen materials um, in part with the goal of modeling for families that, that play can be simple. Mm. And so we choose these materials that are kind of everyday materials and, and with an eye towards what the children are interested in. So they have this sort of time to explore. Sometimes they stay close to the nido, to the nest. Sometimes they go for long walks. Sometimes the whole group goes for a walk. Um, and then they come back and we have um, a shared snack. Um, so we have a homemade snack and um, we draw from Latin American recipes. Most often we, we have um, pan de lote, which is like a Mexican sweet cornbread. Um, the kids all really seem to love. <laughs> and, and then we close with some songs, with some, with some songs from um, our, so we have a little song book that we share with families. And so we pick from there. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And is this in a park or is it in a uh, private space? So right, they're all in public parks, all of our Nido classes. So we have a few locations in Prospect Park and one in Fort Greene Park. Um, we've been in Central Park this summer, which is really fun. And, um, you know, we're, we grow at a slow pace because both me and my co-founder are our mothers. So we grow at a pace that's manageable, but, um, <laughs> but we have, we've, this is our, this summer is our 10th season of doing it. And at this point, I think we've worked with over 400 families. So it's really, wow. really lovely. Do yeah. you find that most of the families uh, are Spanish speaking at home or are there a lot of families that join because they want their children to start learning Spanish? It's a mix. It's a real mix. And, you know, I was, um, reading, you had an Instagram post a couple days ago, I think about heritage learners heritage language learners. And so we have that too. So we also have cool. families who 
come to us and they might not speak Spanish, but maybe a grandparent did. And so there's this sort of wanting to bring it back into the life of the family. Um, so we have a, it's a real blend and it's, you know, sometimes we'll have a group where everybody is Spanish speakers and sometimes we'll have a group where everyone is learning for the first time. And so our teachers are able um, to adapt to that, that, to that situation. And they have that information ahead of time going into the class. So they have a sense of, okay, this is a group that, that is learning. This is a group that want, you know, can be fully immersed right away. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Um, and so how do you feel that um, outdoor education or forest school approach um, aligns with or supports bilingualism and multilingualism? I think it works so well. <laughs> um, one of the things that that um, one of the sort of core values that we have at NEDO is that we want children, we know children will learn the language when they see value in it and when it's connected to their lived experience. So the being outdoors and engaged in play provides so many opportunities for um, language and, and, and this sort of natural use of language where, you know, if you're holding, um, if this child is splashing in water and you're talking about the agua, there's this direct link and this direction that, that makes it so, um, clear to them what it is that you're talking about, right? And so there's this, the context is so rich um, that children are able to pick things up because of that context and because our teachers, um, you know, we work closely with them so that they know how to support this kind of um, learning that's that's based on what the child is experiencing and interested in, um, as opposed to, you know, throwing language out there for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, so there's not, we don't have this sort of we don't go in saying we're going to learn all the colors. We go in saying, you know, we're going to explore what's here. And if color comes up, it comes up because the child is interested in it and then it has meaning. Um, and so, so we have all of these um, materials and, and, and songs that, that um, bring out themes. Um, and then the children show us what it is that they're ready for. Mm. Yeah. And I bet the adults who are not fluent in Spanish also learn a lot in that context as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we've had a lot of feedback from parents um, throughout uh, throughout our, our few years doing this that we've tried to incorporate. Um, so we're always kind of tweaking the balance of Spanish and English. In the beginning, we were really firm about it being immersive. And then we realized um, from speaking to some parents, well, you know, they actually that wasn't helpful because it's not like they're immersed for a long period. It's only for an hour. Mm. So it felt like it made it harder for some people to engage. So then we kind of rethought that. And now the balance is a little bit different. Um, and we use English as needed to kind of make sure everyone's engaged and involved in learning. We got feedback from some parents about wanting a dictionary and so we started to include an illustrated seasonal dictionary at the back of each songbook. And so there's a little image and then the word in Spanish and in English so that parents can know, you know, if I'm talking about a palo, it's a stick. Or if we're talking about el sol, it's the sun. And there's this quick reference point for, for adults who are learning alongside us. And, um, and the children really love it too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. And um, have you found just on a personal level, have you 
made any um, like lasting friendships that have come out of this program? Yes. Well, interestingly, my co-founder, um, Paulina, was my daughter's babysitter. And she was the person who I went to when, with this idea and said, do you want to do it? Um, and she, she, of course, jumped on board and we developed it together. And so now she's seen me through becoming a mother a second time. I've seen her through becoming a mother for the first time. And so our bond has really grown in a really amazing way. Um, and then my daughter has made really lovely friendships that are, you know, there's something really special about um, our classes aren't drop-in. They meet for 13 weeks in the fall or 13 weeks in the spring. And it's enough time that you can really form those relationships because there's this sort of returning and returning and returning and having lots of different experiences together that really builds that sense of community um, and we have so many families that return with their younger child or they return for another season. And so we've gotten to see these, these families grow over the yeah. last three years. It's really beautiful. Um, tell me a little bit about how you tell parents to dress their children for any weather condition. <laughs> we have a guide on our enrolled families portal for each season. And we let families know that it's probably going to be messy so that they should dress for that. Sometimes we recommend that they bring an extra change of clothes. Um, if it's cold, we have um, recommendations in terms of layers that they might want to wear. Um, and one of the things that I've found the most useful as a parent is one of those um, muddy buddy suits. So those like rain suits that are just one piece because you can put it over anything and it doesn't matter what happens. They can lay down fully in a puddle, which happens fairly regularly <laughs> and at the end of class you unzip it and it looks like nothing ever happened <laughs> underneath <laughs> wow that's great I know I love seeing um photos and videos of children in forest schools and they look like they're all wearing hazmat suits it's so yeah. cute <laughs> yeah yeah and the hazmat suits have a real purpose <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's so nice especially for city kids who probably don't mm -hmm. get to get their hands dirty and, you know, feel connected to the natural world as much as um, a child in the suburbs or the country might. So that's, yeah. that's really nice. Definitely. And, and we've seen, I mean, even in myself, I've seen that change where in the beginning, as much as I was for the forest school and as much time as I spent as a child playing outside, it was still a little hard to like get my hands all the way in the mud. You know, like it didn't come naturally to me as a parent, at least to really get in there. And the more time that we spent doing it and the more experiences that I had of just washing my hands after <laughs> and realizing it, it does come off. Yeah, <laughs> that the, the more comfortable I got and the more relaxed I was and the more that my own child was able to really engage with nature in this way that was um, so free. So my last question for you is what advice do you have for parents interested in raising bilingual or multilingual children? Ooh, this is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's so many different ways to approach raising bilingual or multilingual children. And I think as parents, we already feel so much pressure to do things right. Um, and for me, it was a relief to realize that there isn't really a right way to do this other than what's right for your family. 
Um, and so one thing that I return to for myself and that keeps me curious and flexible is knowing that we can always tweak our approach and that we can change it when it's not working or when it stops working um, and that we can always continue to learn and adapt with our kids because it's a lifelong process. Um, and at my house, for sure, I know we're still learning what this is going to look like for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important that it's not set in stone and you can go down one route and change course and decide mm -hmm. to change things up. Um, and I think what you were talking about before is also so important, finding a community where you can and, mm -hmm. um, and really finding ways for languages to come alive for children yeah. to have a purpose. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, well, thank, thank you. you so much for being a guest today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Melina for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Melina on Instagram at Parent Pueblo and at Nido Forest. You can find a link to her Instagram accounts and websites in the episode description. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori, and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a five-star rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to help keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. The podcast is going to take a summer break for the month of August while I record new episodes and prepare for more exciting conversations coming in the fall. In the meantime, there are 23 previous episodes plus a bonus episode for you to explore. Thanks again for listening and see you in September.